Hello, and welcome to the Music Teacher Coffee Talk podcast. I'm Carrie. And I'm Tanya. We are both elementary music teachers who love to talk shop, preferably over a steaming cup of coffee. This is episode number 68. Today, we are having a Q&A session with questions submitted by you, the listeners. We'll also be sharing some ideas in a new segment we're calling Know Better, Do Better. And in our CODA section, we'll give some specific recommendations of our favorite things in and out of the music room. So grab your beverage of choice and let's get started. And it's time for our main theme, some questions and some answers as much as we can um, of from, from you, the listeners. So we put this out on Instagram and on Facebook and through our Gmail, um, and we got quite a few questions. Uh, some of them were similar, and so we have smooshed some together, but we're just going to roll through these and do our best to answer them and be, I'm going to be as honest um, as possible, which might yeah. be a little embarrassing. Oh, well. Okay. So, okay. Number so question number one that we got is... This is, this is already going to challenge us. Any tried and true lessons for sixth grade general music? So I guess we'll start off by saying I do still currently teach sixth grade general music. And you, Tanya, have taught sixth grade general music both in an elementary school setting and also in a more middle school setting, although it was a K through eight school. So I guess it's technically sixth grade music either way. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. So you get to you get to share an idea first, Tanya. What do your sixth graders? What have they loved? Okay. Well, I'm not going to list out like a specific beginning to end lesson, but I will tell you what the big hits are for sixth grade. Um, in sixth grade, I noticed that that students really want more and more of a voice, and they like a lot of choice. They do still like singing and um, playing and dancing and playing games. Um, com- competition is big on, for the sixth graders. Uh, Yay Toop de Rom comes to mind as far as singing games. Keyboards has always been a big hit with sixth graders because they can be on their individual path as far as like independent. I, I have I have an awesome set of books through the district for keyboard, and I do a little bit of group, just a tiny bit of group teaching, but then kids work on their own and that's always the kids love using the keyboards this last year i was going to do a a a lot of ukulele and then because of the covid19 business that didn't happen so i can't speak to that um i've done a blues unit and i usually do do that in sixth grade i moved it to fifth grade when um when i lost sixth grade for a while Um, And that's always a big hit when I make sure I spend a lot of time with them playing and them writing their own blues lyrics. So off the top um, of biggest hits for sixth grade, I would say that would be lots of choice, competition when you can, friendly competition, and letting their voices be heard through writing lyrics, doing some compositional things within a framework, that kind of thing. And you, Carrie? Awesome. Um, yeah, similar stuff for sure. Um, the way that I've kind of chosen to chunk out my sixth grade year, the last couple of years that I think is working really well is um, because we're on a trimester system in our district. Um, I, I kind of choose an instrument as a unit and then we're working on, you know, concepts and skills within those instruments. But first trimester, I've done like group drumming activities. Um, second trimester, I do have not a full class set of guitars, but enough that we can at least have one for every two students. So I do guitar and then third trimester piano. So um, kind of giving those, really digging into those instrumental opportunities rather than just a surfacey thing, but really truly learning um, instruments is something that they love. And it's interesting because it's not always the same kids that like the same instruments. So I feel like in that way, you know, I'm sometimes surprised at which kids really latch on to certain things who really likes guitar versus who really likes piano so it kind of gives everyone an opportunity to enjoy and play something you know in that way and then another thing that I've done is kind of a mini unit with um, sixth grade and I've done this with fifth grade as well as a stomp inspired unit I've talked about this on the podcast before a lot um, but it's, just, it's really popular the kids really love it I've actually done a whole performance um, out of this as well where the students create their own um, you know polyrhythmic um, 
pieces and then they choose found sounds to play them on and then we put it together in a in a program tied it together with some videos in between of like real stomp performances and um the kids really enjoyed that because who doesn't like banging on weird stuff you know yeah Get, yeah. like gives them a chance to really be creative and just have fun in that way yes great um, i thought i forgot to mention that i do a lot of world drumming stuff too um the will schmidt materials i think are excellent for mm -hmm. those they're a really good foundation and then then you get really creative off of his basic lessons so and i'm with you carrie when in doubt pound on things is yeah. my philosophy with sixth grade yes definitely and our next question is, had you started looking ahead and making adaptive teaching plans or are you waiting it out, Carrie? Well, yes and yes <laughs> and no and no. Um, I don't know. I feel like I'm kind of in a little bit of a hybrid where, yeah, I'm thinking ahead a little bit, um, kind of just more big questions about like, okay, if we are in any sort of a in-person or hybrid model, what could I do that doesn't involve so much hand-holding if we're playing singing games and things like that or not being able to share instruments and materials? So I am thinking through some of those bigger questions, but at this point, there's still so much that is unknown that I, I am waiting it out. And also next year, I am going to be assigned to a new school, so I'm staying at my my main school is my home school, but then I'm also traveling to a second school. So I just have no clue what my schedule is going to look like, what, how often I'm going to see the kids, if we're going to see our kids at all. I mean, so as much as I'm all for planning, I'm also all for, um, you know, good use of my own time. So if I spend too much time on the nitty gritty stuff, I think in the end, I'm just going to feel frustrated. So that's my honest answer to that question. I'm thinking big, just big questions. What can we do? Um, or if we are fully online, how can I make that experience better for my students, but not going into too much detail? Same, Zs. Um, yeah. <laughs> because I, I have thought about, okay, what if we can't take hands? What if we can't do folk dances? And I'm kind of trying to think of, okay, what can we do? Um, even if, what can, what if we can't sing? So I've been kind of picking at those ideas, but I have not fleshed anything out. Um, and, I, and I'm glad that I'm waiting it out right now because I'm really consumed with other big picture things that I need to think through. Uh, I only have so much bandwidth, like anybody. And I need to focus on some other things. And we'll talk more about that in our Do Better, No Better, Do Better seg segment. Um, so no, I'm not thinking about details right now. I, we, I'm going to be at two schools as well. And the second school, we've already put in place a schedule for if things are just absolutely back to normal, got that going. And chances are they won't be absolutely 100% back to normal what we know is normal and i just can't start formulating really solid plans until i really know what's it gonna look like so i'm putting that off and i'm totally. feeling okay about it yeah yeah well our next question is kind of on the same line what lessons would be good for next year if they keep up with, with social distancing i need more mm -hmm. <laughs> is, is the quote don't from the we question. all okay yeah uh, so, Tanya, well, do you have any specific thoughts on that at this time? I, I do have some thoughts. It was really awesome to go to Nissa Brown's week of webinars where she was talking to music teachers who have already started back in hybrid situations and hearing, like, some of the things that they're doing and thinking. And there was a lot of talk about, like, body percussion and percussion on the desk. And, like, of course, you cannot – teach a whole year of music through that. But as far as active music making, I'm, I'm really trying to put things in the categories of, okay, what active music making stuff could we do if we are social distancing or if we're in a hybrid situation where kids have to be at desks and, and are not supposed to mix and get up. And then, so I've got active music making stuff and then what kind of reflective music appreciation or even composing through um, technology things can we do? So that's kind of the two big, huge categories that I'm thinking of. And I'm trying to get 
better educated through a few um, webinars this summer, and there's so many of them, which is awesome. Um, I've been wanting to do world music pedagogy forever, and I'm going to be doing a shortened online truncated version of, of the real deal that they usually do a week worth of um, world music pedagogy lessons with culture bears and all of those instructors are still there, but everything is online. So it'll be interesting to see what that looks like. I really want to make sure I'm pulling in some world musics because it's something that I've been thinking about for a long time, but I haven't done it consistently in my school year. And so I'm thinking this is a great opportunity if we are doing a lot more online things. Um, it seems like that's going to be more applicable to being online than, um, you know, if we were in the classroom, totally back to normal for real. So I think this is kind of like an opportunity for that. And totally. how about you? Yeah. Um, yeah, same ideas. Um, you know, it's funny because one of the things that came to my mind when I started thinking about students in their desks and us going into their classroom was, you know, there, there are these old videos that I know I saw during levels and I've seen since of um, children learning music in Hungary and they're all sitting at their desks with their little staff boards and there's not a lot of like getting up and doing the game at least in the particular video I watched there was a lot of sitting at the desk and singing and coming to the board and doing individual staff work on your your little felt boards at your desks that that's exactly what we're going to be <laughs> I'm going to feel like to a point and I'm not saying that's all I'm going to do obviously but um, so one thing I started to wrap my mind around and I've actually seen other people with this idea too is this idea of giving kids like a little music kit that they can keep in their desks at all times that would have like a little individual staff that we could do some dictation activities um you know a pair of chopsticks that we can use as rhythm sticks that we can create some ostinati and do some things with so that's kind of where my mind has been going with the social distancing that's a great idea yeah so i mean if we can't share materials you got to find something exactly okay <clears throat> next question is along the same lines. Um, finding balance between preparing for the unknown while preparing for the transition from life as a college student to life as a full-time teacher. And I'm going to add on in the time of COVID because, wow, I mean, can you imagine coming out of college at this point and going into a teaching situation? You know what? It might not be, I don't know. I mean, you don't know what it's like to enter, quote, the normal teaching situation and so this is true. maybe and I would, a little more flexible I don't know yeah and I would think if you were doing your student teaching you know then you've already had a taste of what online learning is like because maybe you were doing cooperating teach your student teaching with a cooperating teacher and you had to help with online learning so I'm you know it's hard to answer this question I think maybe for Tanya and I because it's so different <laughs> <laughs> the time we were transitioning um, from college to full-time teaching, all this online stuff was not existent the way that it is now. I, there was no online professional development. So, I mean, our, our advice is always to look for professional development opportunities and what a great opportunity now that they're online, right? Where in, you know, and I still, I still advocate that when they're back doing in-person training, Tanya and I've talked about this too, the power of actually learning in person. It's there's, it's, there's, it, it can't be replicated online. There are certain things that translate well to online learning and there are certain things that don't. We've discovered that as teachers, right? Mm -hmm. So now we know how our students feel as well. Um, so when it comes to workshops about active music making and singing and those kind of things, I definitely think, you know, as soon as we can get back to in-person workshops, I'll be going to them myself. But this is a great opportunity to be able to take advantage of professional development all over the world, literally, um, because there's there's such a need for it right now and there's so much out there. Totally. So I think that's really where to start is just especially look for free opportunities where I'm going to go ahead and do a plug now, if that's okay, Tanya. Yes, do that. Um, here in Colorado, we have Rocky, which is our local Kodai chapter, and the Rocky Mountain Orf chapter, and they have teamed up to present a series of, I want to say there's six of them, or maybe there's seven now, um, free two-hour webinars. They're going to be on Tuesdays, 9 to 11 a.m., uh, mountain time. Um, and there's a variety of presenters that are all local Colorado people. Myself and Tanya are both presenting. Tanya is going to be presenting on June 30th and I'm going to be presenting on July 7th. And we'll definitely link to the, um, to the information and 
uh, the registration page, but they're totally free. And so what a great opportunity just to get a little bit of professional development in on a Tuesday morning mm -hmm. um, from some, a variety of folks here in Colorado. And you so don't have to just, live in Colorado to do it. You just Exactly. Yeah. So that's just one opportunity. There's so many others. And actually in two episodes ago, so that, that would have been episode 66, when we talk about our summer plans, we actually listed quite a few professional development opportunities. Some of them maybe have passed by the time you listen to this. But if you listen to this fairly soon upon it coming out, you know, go back and check out the show notes from episode 66 because we list a lot of opportunities there as well. And more and more have been popping up. I see on Facebook, I see on Instagram. So, yeah. And I have a feeling that it's going to continue into the fall. I know, you know, at least in the Kodai world, a lot of the, the Kodai chapters are really planning on having workshops being online, at least for the fall. Um, just because how can you plan something in person? We just can't yet. So yeah. not only look into your local, you know, chapters, Kodai and Orf, but you can look into chapters all over. It's awesome. Yes. So how about you, Tanya? Preparing for the unknown, especially transitioning from college. Well, college was a very long time ago for me. Uh -huh. But yeah, and like you were saying, I did not have uh, technology like it exists now was not a thing. Um, I mean, you know, I'm aging myself, which is like, so I do it all the time. When I came out of college, the internet was not there. There was no internet. So that was very, very different. Um, as far as the basic transition, like as a college student, I was really um, excited about being a musician and singing in the opera chorus and singing in my choirs. Uh, and that's a wonderful thing that you should definitely try to keep up in some capacity because that's something, and I think I'm speaking for a lot of music teachers that I wish I, I mean, I did keep, keep it up right after college. Uh, but it kind of has faded away when other things take priority. And I think it's really important to be a musician who keeps on making music and keeps on learning. And it's also an incredible outlet when you're going through that first year of teaching, which let's face it, I mean, as prepared as you could be, it's your first year of teaching. So there's going to be things that you are going to go through that you could have never imagined. Um, and like Carrie said, professional development just has saved me. Uh, my first three years of teaching, I, I did do quite a few workshops and that was what kept me going because I realized that my undergrad music ed certainly did not prepare me for elementary music teaching. I think I got a lot of good choral stuff because, you know, we were all going to be the next greatest choral director. But then when you get an elementary music job, you're kind of like, well, um, and you try to do some of those lessons that you get in your methods classes from undergrad and uh, it wasn't working for me. So that training really was just essential for me during my first year, my first three years until I got my, any of my code eye training. I had a lot of or uh, workshops that I was going off of. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Next one. When do we record our podcast, Tanya? And the bigger question um, is, I wonder how you have time during the school year, which I think maybe leads to kind of a, a bigger question of finding work, life, family, and side gig balances, right? Yeah. So I'm going to let you start it off, Tanya. Okay. There is no balance. It's everything is... <laughs> It's just some things at, at certain times are, are taking more time than other things. I don't know. I mean, Carrie and I, we're both teachers. We both have families. I have two kids. She has two kids. Um, this is like, this is like my hobby. I really am not doing a whole, I mean, I'm a very quiet person. I like to read. I'm working out. I'm walking a lot. Um, I like to play music individually, but as far as like, that other stuff, when I just, when we decided we wanted to do this podcast, we knew we were going to have to have somewhat of a schedule. So we made sure that we put together, um, you know, just some norms like, okay, let's do it every two weeks. I could not, I know there are people out there who are putting out podcasts every week. That's not going to happen. And, and we're not going to fool ourselves into that. Actually, this is funny because this particular episode that we're doing right now is going to make us have two <laughs> one week two weeks and the next week, row. two weeks in a row, which I don't think has ever happened. Um, so, you know, we don't beat ourselves up over every other week. I think that's 
that's pretty good. Um, so I think I couldn't do this without Carrie because I think we need to hold each other accountable. We put things on a calendar and share them. Um, and we usually record during the school year, we usually record like on a weeknight, sometimes on a weekend night. And I usually go over to her house to do the recording, yep. uh, which has worked really well to be in the same room. Right now we are not in the same room because we're still sheltering. Well, say, what, what do we call it now? Safer at home? Yes. Yeah. And, and I'm a little more squeamish than most people I know. And my, me and my family have hardly been anywhere. We're starting to get out a tiny bit more, but honestly, um, I think that, yeah, I think that the COVID is still real. So I'm not making a lots of trips outside of my house and, um, yeah. So we usually record it in the evening, which is funny because we're not drinking coffee. Um, but yeah. sometimes we're drinking other things. Not just sometimes. <laughs> you know what? I thought about that and I thought, no, cause it's Friday night. And I thought maybe it's I true. could just sip on a beer. And I thought maybe not. I'm not going to do that. Yeah. No, I, I am trying to answer Cleo's questions with some thought. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I've been rambling about when do we record and, and how much time it takes during the school year and all that. Did you want to add anything? Well, I want to just go on a tiny little bit of a soapbox, if I may. Because, <laughs> you know, Tanya and I, we talked, I mean, first of all, when Tanya asked me if I wanted to do this podcast, I thought she was nuts and I didn't think anyone would listen. And I, more than that, I really didn't think I had anything intelligent to say. And this just goes back to, you know, just, you know, self-advocating and knowing, you know, feeling good about myself and where I am in my education journey. And I fully admit still that I don't know everything, but at the same time, I mean, I've been teaching for, this will be year 20 for me coming up. And for you, Tanya, it's going to be year 25. Yeah. And that's not to say that I didn't have intelligent things to say or thoughts or ideas when I was younger, because I certainly feel like I did. But at the same time, I, I get concerned as someone who's later in my teaching journey, especially on social media with, you know, I hear a lot of teachers talking, young teachers talking about burnout. And it seems like that conversation happens sooner and sooner and sooner. And I get it. I understand there are years where I have felt totally burned out. Um, but I attribute the fact that, at least for my longevity in my career so far, to the fact that I feel like I have paced myself in that way. And, you know, I guess the, the pressures were, were not there. My first couple years of teaching, there was no TPT. There was no social media. There was no blogging. There was no podcasting. So I didn't feel a pressure to try to do that when I was younger. But I'm really trying to reflect on had those things been around, but I have been ready to do all those things. And I don't think the answer is yes for me personally. I, cause even when Tanya asked me if I wanted to do this a couple of years ago, I really had to think hard about whether I felt like a, I had the time and B I had, I was ready to say what the things I wanted to say. So I guess my, my advice for anyone who's thinking about doing some sort of a, you know, a side gig, whether it's, TPT, blogging, podcasting, any of those things, you know, just, just remember that you're a teacher first. And if you're not a teacher first, maybe you're not blogging and talking about the right thing, because if that's not really what you're in it for, you know, and I'm not trying to accuse anybody of anything. I'm just, I just want us all to be reflective about, you know, for me doing this podcast has expanded my horizons as a teacher because of the conversations Tanya and, and I have had and the feedback we've gotten from everybody in the community. But if it gets to a point where I feel like it's taking away from my day-to-day -day teaching or I'm feeling burnout as a teacher, I want to be very reflective of why that is. And maybe it's because of all the stuff I'm doing outside of my teaching job. Does that make sense? Excellently said. I'm, I'm, you went there. Um, I went there. You went there. Carrie and I talk a lot about this off mic and I think I mean, gosh, we could have a whole other podcast episode about this, but, um, and you pretty much said it. I, I don't know what I would have done if I had started my teaching career with this whole idea of branding oneself as a teacher and doing things that are Instagrammable or for the Facebook page or whatever. That didn't exist. And I'm kind of thankful because I really needed my energies and my focus, my concentration to go towards teaching. And I mean, I think I'm kind of a slow learner teacher. Um, you know how the 
people say that, oh, that person's a natural teacher and they just, you know, I am not that person. Um, if I have any success, it's just because I've been doing it for very long and I've done all the mistakes first. Uh, so yeah, I, I agree that I, I don't think I would have been ready to, um, you know, sell anything or run any workshops or teach any method classes or anything pretty much during my first 10 to 15 years. And that's just <laughs> me personally, because I only yeah. know me as a teacher. Um, and it took me a long time before I did, like you said, feel like I had anything um, worth contributing. But I, yeah, it is worth thinking about, you know, why are you doing what you're doing? Is it going to make an awesome Instagram post? Is it going to make an awesome TPT product? I mean, if that's the first thing that you're thinking about, maybe you need to refocus because it really does need to be about teaching children music. And that's not real glamorous. I know, no. I know sometimes it looks real glamorous, but um, <laughs> then you might be doing it for the wrong reasons if you're there for the, the glamour of it all. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. All right. Yeah. Stepping off. Okay. Our, our, We're stepping off. Boxes. Stepping off. Next okay. question, Tanya. All right, this is a good one. What do you recommend teachers do after the three Kodai levels to continue their growth? Well, <laughs> we already talked about a, a few of those things, mm -hmm. which are going to professional developments, um, especially now being able to do that virtually. Um, Another big recommendation that I have is get involved in whatever organizations you are able to. I know it can be expensive, but you know, Tanya and I are both very involved in Oak. We've both served on the national board as well as our, our local chapter boards. And I think that's just a really great way to, first of all, find a community of like-minded educators. And then second of all, be able to, you know, promote any sort of change that you feel needed within those organizations, you know, especially right now, there's a lot of talk about some of these organizations really needing to reflect and focus on change and what a great opportunity if you see an opportunity to have your voice be a part of that conversation to get involved in your local, your local chapter or a larger, a larger board if you're able to. So those are kind of my, my big recommendations is continue your journey with professional development. I know I'm not done with my professional development. I'm still doing it all the time. And then get involved in whatever organizations you, you feel you are financially and time-wise able to get involved in. I concur. I don't think I have much to add to that except for, yeah, just be, become involved. It's really your, um, it's not just an opportunity to be involved with your organizations that you believe in, but it's really a mission. It should be a mission of yours to perpetuate. When you find good music teaching uh, groups, um, you really need to be part of the music advocacy piece and make sure that those continue. And they need you. They need your voice. Um, and then, of course, all the ideas about going to trainings and remain open as a learner. Just because you've been teaching X numbers of years doesn't mean that you know everything. And a lot of times you have to put your ego aside and just be willing to keep learning. And I'm doing it all the time. And whenever I, I am more ego centered, then it, it always kind of hits me in the rear when I, when I do that. So for sure. Totally. All right. And then this actually kind of leads well into the next question about learning. Um, are there any books you guys have read previously for the book club or not that you recommend? Uh, recommend. My goodness, recommend. I can't talk. So um, we're going to talk about our summer book club here in a little bit, but Tanya and I have done a summer book club for the last couple of years. So we can talk about those books or any other books. Tanya, I'm going to let you go first. Okay. So I'm going to assume that we're talking about um, professional music. Right. I think we should books. probably stick to that. Yeah. I mean, every once in a while we do give recommendations for like other not music teaching type books. Um, well, this is a time that we'll, we'll say that we're doing our book club, music education and social emotional learning is our book for this summer. And, um, and that, that I think is a timely, timely subject. As far as professional, you know, sometimes some of the professional reading can be um, quite dry. If I were a brand new teacher, there is a book 
by Harry Wong called The First Days of School that I reread or at least pick through at the beginning of every school year. And it's not music teaching specific, but um, The First Days of School is an excellent just getting your mindset going for school. As far as like music teaching and Kodai books, well, I mean, if, you're, if your Kodai um, vision is, is, if that's where you're coming from, um, I, all of the Susan Brumfield First We Sing volumes are invaluable, um, but especially I enjoy her collections of songs from England, so, songs from Scotland, um, Hot Peas and Barleyo. So, I mean, there's lots of collections. And so when you say reading, you know, books that you've read that we would recommend, I'll admit that lots of these books that I've got surrounding me in my office right here I have not read all the way through. I have read uh, The Kodai Context by Lois Chosky all the way through. And that, that book is kind of out of print. Um, it, it comes and goes as far as like what kind of printing you can find that in. But that's something yeah. that is a good um, Kodai primer for sure if you haven't had to read that for your levels. Uh, beyond that, there's, you know, all of the, the ones that people usually recommend the... Um, Kodai Today by Hulahan and Taka is an excellent resource as well. And I admit I have not read that to cover to cover. So. Yeah, I yes, agree with all of those. I mean, those Kodai Today and um, Susan Brumfield's first to be saying that, you know, the teacher edition um, were both on my list of books that I really actually wanted to really truly read. Um, and really dig into more than I have been able to in the past because they're books that are on my shelf but haven't read them all the way through. I do want to give um, a shout out to our last two summer summer book club readings because I know I'm just pulling I, my my volumes down so I, can I make know sure I get those titles right. So yeah, so I have mine in front of me here. So last year we read Teaching for Musical Understanding by Jackie Wiggins, which is a lot about. Um, Oh gosh, how am I going to be able to summarize this up really it's well? It's extremely it's conceptual a, and it makes it you rethink. Is. It's, yeah. it's really to me just about kind of what is like student driven learning looking like in the music room because so much of what we do in the music room kind of defaults to being teacher centered. Um, and so really pushing back past that to kind of more of a, a project based learning model or um, constructivist teaching model. That's kind of the word I was looking for that I couldn't think of a second ago. And I think especially right now with our journey into online or hybrid learning or just having to learn differently, um, I, I was hoping I might have time to reread it or at least skim through it and look at the things that I highlighted. Um, so yeah, that's what we read last summer. And then the summer before we read World Music Pedagogy uh, Volume 2, Elementary Music Education. And I know we went back and forth about, well, do we want to read another one of the World Music Pedagogy books for this summer? Because Tanya, you mentioned you're going to even take one of the, the online courses this summer. It's something that we're very interested in, but we thought just for the sake of the podcast, it would be kind of nice to, to dig into a different topic. But I'm definitely interested in checking out, is it volume one that's for early elementary, Tanya? Do you have that volume one Volume one by Sarah. Yeah, I do. Volume one, World Music Pedagogy, volume one by Sarah H. Watts is for early childhood education, and it's like preschool and kindergarten. Yeah. Um, yeah, I ended up getting most of them and I really wanted to do a shout out because this is the one that is going to be my big focus this summer I mean beyond the one that we're reading for um uh for our book group is music education and diversity building cultures and communities by Patricia Sheehan Campbell so Dr. Campbell is well known in the world music pedagogy I mean she fosters these programs has fostered these programs um and yeah so this this book is uh fantastic like i have not read it all the way so i feel like i i, I should speak to it but let me just read the the prelude is powering cultural understanding through music which is pretty much where my brain is right now and I think it also works really well with the possible uh, the possibilities of us being a hybrid or online. So that's going to be my big focus. One of my big focuses: music education and diversity. Patricia Sheehan Campbell. Yeah. All right. 
next All question. Right. What's the next question? Where are we? Number eight. Um, number eight. To what extent will you continue to teach your Kodai sequence next year, especially if you are online or a hybrid teaching? Oh, go, you get to answer that one first. Oh, yikes. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it depends, doesn't it? It just really, truly depends. Um, I want to continue teaching my my Kodai sequence. I, I'm not going to say I'm I'm ready to like say, well, forget all of it and throw it away because I think there's value to to the Kodai sequence. What I'm really reevaluating, however, are the resources and materials that I'm using to teach that Kodai sequence and specifically around, you know, decentering whiteness and getting more diverse literature um, into my sequence. So kind of piggybacking on the last question about books, another big goal of mine this summer was, you know, in the last year, especially, I have been purchasing a lot more um, multicultural, multicultural or just basically not, you know, American white tradition songbooks from, from all over the world and also here in America, but not white America. So, you know, African-American uh, collections, things from um, Africa, things from, well, I mean, then, then also things from Europe, but just the idea of uh, just trying to get away from, you know, just always picking folk songs from the same collections, like the Orange Book and the Blue Book, which that's another conversation Those for another Those are scholarly day. titles, yes. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so my whole point being that I have a lot of resources and song collections that I haven't really had the time to go through and start pulling songs out and looking at them and going, oh, and then I should also say Latino song collections, Hispanic folk songs, because a large population in one of my schools I teach at is I have a large Latino population. So I want to make sure that I'm doing better by my students by giving them um, a more diverse collection of songs to sing. And then based on that, I might be changing my sequence up a little bit because that is what we have been told to do as Kodai educators, but that's not something I have been as reflective about as I should have. So all that to say, I still think that music literacy is important. Tanya and I have had little conversations here and there about what is music literacy, and that might be a whole nother podcast uh, episode in itself. But just the idea of, if we're still talking about traditional music literacy in the Western European tradition, how can we still teach music literacy, but literacy, but with a much more diverse and representative body of songs to teach from? Yes. That's my long answer to that, that short question. You know, excuse me. <clears throat> this is a um, this is a huge question right now. I'm it's a huge question all the time. But there's a couple of things that are driving me to really reconsider. Ex well, reconsider the sequence, but also reconsider the importance of sticking to a sequence if we are online teaching or if we are hybrid teaching. I really don't think that it's going to be feasible. If we are 100% online in August, and let's say that lasts until January, let's just say, I really don't think that I'm going to um, expect students to really be chugging along through any kind of melodic or rhythmic sequence. I think that is unrealistic and I think that would frustrate everybody because there are so many things that are going to take precedence over them doing this in a certain order. Um, like mental health and community not being the least of that. Like I really think that it's going to be crucial that if we are teaching 100% online, or even if we're teaching in a hybrid situation, I think it is crucial that we take the community building piece of music and elementary music and what we're doing with the kids. We take that community building and that emotional support much more uh, as a priority than making sure that the first graders have Ta and Titi and So Me by the end of the year. So I'm not saying that music literacy is not important, but, you know, we've got uh, this virus that's going on. It, it really just changes our, um, it just kind of has changed the lens that we need to look through to do what's, the, what's best for our students. And I think that what's best for our students in um, this 
kind of trauma-induced um, educational world that we might find ourselves in is going to be using the the healing powers and the community building powers and the expressive powers of music more than anything else. Now, of course, all of that music literacy, those are building blocks for that, right? But I really think that I, I'm, I'm going to drive myself and everyone else nuts in my school community if I'm really trying to plow through those music literacy um, topics. You know what I'm saying? Yes. And that actually just leads so beautifully into the next question, which is kind of like, okay, then what? Uh, so the question specifically is what new learning or experiences do you hope to bring to your students that is outside of your quote unquote Kodai normal next year? So it, assuming that what we mean by Kodai normal is focus on music literacy, but you know, also the, the focus on singing and singing games. So what things are you hoping to include? You've already mentioned a few of them a little bit, but what do you well, think, Tanya? Uh, I really like how Kate, because this is from Casey, right? Katie um, Casey. Katie Casey. Sorry, Katie. Thank you so much for just some awesome questions. So I liked how Katie put Kodai normal in quotes because mm -hmm. I, in case you hadn't figured this out, there is no Kodai normal. It's going to all change. There, mm -hmm. Kodai normal's going away. Let it go. Um, not that you were holding on to it, but I'm, maybe I'm speaking to me. I don't think there is going to, I don't think there, there is a Kodai normal things have to change. Um, so as far as new learning experiences, definitely more world music. Um, that's, that's my big focus. And I think, I mean, I kind of answered that in the last one, focusing on music for all, music for everyone, but not necessarily reading those cute, adorable TPT rhythm cards for all. Um, <laughs> Not my nice. priority right now. Right. Um, I just want to mention something that I I have not dug into as into as much as I'd like to, um, and I'm thinking I probably will next year, whether we're online or hybrid or whatever, is um, the Musician of the Month project. Oh, So yes. this is a project that um, I've seen presented um, by Adam McLean and Richard Saunders at the last OAKE um, conference, and I've, I've seen Adam present on it previous to that as well. So it's this idea of really decentering whiteness as far as um, what, what listening and um, learning experiences we're giving to our students, not just about composers, but musicians in general. And I just really love this project. Um, they have a wonderful website, so it's musicianofthemonthproject.com, and it's just really comprehensive as far as the the variety of, of musicians that they're featuring and um, the depth of the research that's being presented on this website. And then of course you can take it and run with it any way you want. So I just think that's a really great opportunity for, for online or hybrid learning that I'm going to look into for next year as well. Excellent. All right. Our last question. Our last Tanya. question. I'm sorry. That's all me. All right. Yeah. What might you be reading, learning, or exploring to become more culturally responsive in your teaching next year? And she put in parentheses, this is no way to say that you weren't before. I'm just thinking in light of recent events. Oh, no offense taken. No, because uh, we, we know we all need to, to do better. There's always learning to be had. Oh, yes. Um, but you get to oh, so I get to one. start. Okay, mm -hmm. well, I mean, I've already mentioned a few things as far as digging into um, more representative uh, folk song literature for my students. Um, I will just mention that um, I am going to be listening to, um, I just added it to my Audible playlist, How to Be Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi. Oh, um, you took mine. <laughs> sorry, that is top <laughs> on my list, not just as a music teacher, but as a human, um, and and I'm gonna listen to it because, well, we talked about this in the last podcast. Not only is the book hard to find right now, which is a good thing, but also I I just I really enjoy, especially for for this type of um, learning, which is it's intense. But if I'm able to listen to the author speak himself, the words that he wrote, it's that much more powerful and it helps me understand better what the author's trying to say. So I'm going to be listening to How to Be an Anti-Racist. I'm very excited to start that, like, tonight. 
Yeah. When we finish our podcast. Yeah. Um, what about you, Tanya? Likewise, that is also on my listening queue. Um, we mentioned a lot of titles in our last episode, and I'm still, you know, working. I'm still reading uh, White Fragility. And it's interesting because I'm, I'm looking up interviews with the author and I'm hearing even more different controversy about it, which is fascinating, but that's a rabbit hole that I'm just going to leave alone for a while. Um, I've been listening to a lot of podcasts uh, and, and very current pro podcasts from people of color talking about what events mean to them right now and what's going on. And they're not all music focused. In fact, most of them aren't music focused. And I have come to realize that I am intellectually unequipped to really deal with what's going on right now. As far as, I don't mean deal like I'm going to break down, but as far as I need to focus on what it is I need to learn historically more thoroughly to put everything into context. Because I'll and so I'm going down many rabbit holes. I'll hear something on a podcast. One of my favorites is Code Switch, which we talked about last time. Um, another one is It's Been a Minute by Sam Sanders. Um, and, and that's what I've been listening to for quite a while. And so when I listen to these podcasts and they have guests on who um, are, say, experts in the Civil War, then that gives me lots more things to consider and to look at because you know, let's be honest, it's been a very long time since I've had American history class. Plus, let's also acknowledge that the American history textbooks that were happening in my high school years, which were the 80s, are going to be um, biased in a different way than they were in the 90s, than they were in the 2000s. And so another book that I've really been digging into, oh my goodness. Gosh, where it is? Oh, Lies My Teacher Told Me by James W. Lowen. And this book attempts to like take different views of history and reframe with different language. And yeah, so um, those are just some of the things that I'm listening to and reading. Uh, I'm having lots of conversations with me, my husband and with you, Carrie, and I'm learning a lot through conversations because it helps process it helps me process and i think that's really important for us white people who haven't really delved in i mean there's little bits of language that i hear that i know are charged and i have to go look up okay what's the history of this term that we hear all the time um decolonizing is one of those terms um on facebook the other day in one of the groups, and it wasn't the decolonizing the music room group, it was another group that um, there was, there's, there's been lots of interesting discussions on Facebook, and I think it's important to know where other people are coming from. So I'm reading all of those, and I'm, I'm kind of commenting here and there, bits and pieces. I'm not looking to get into a rumble, but I'm sorry, I interrupted myself from the original idea was that <laughs> there was a conversation that I was reading where someone briefly took um, that word decolonizing and, and said, well, can't we call it something nicer? Okay. When you look up the word and when you understand what colonizing means in the first place, no, the fantastic music educators who put together the room, the, the, the space on Facebook and the website and have been talking, the decolonizing the music room contributors they choose language extremely intentionally. The word decolonizing is exactly the right word. And if you don't understand that, that's okay, but go look it up and make sure you know why we're saying decolonizing is the word that we want to use, right? So there's been lots of rabbit holes. Thank goodness for um, the internet, but we do have to make sure that we um, you know, stay on topic when we're doing our rabbit hole diving um, and that you use good sources because there are some things that are worth reading online. And then there are some things that you're just kind of spinning your wheels and wasting your time. Like, you know, that saying, don't read the comments. Well, sometimes don't read the comments. Yeah. Yeah. And what I keep coming back to is 
you know, anytime I feel like I'm just getting stuck or I'm just, I'm, I'm in my own head and I'm, I'm, I'm stuck in my process of, of where to go and how to feel and just all of it, you know, I just, I really think back to my kids. And when I see my kids, I mean my personal kids, but I also am talking about my students, my student kids, because mm-hmm. that brings it back to reality to me of how can I do better for them? How can I do better to educate myself so I can educate them. And that's what I always go back to. And then it, it keeps me focused on, on the conversation that needs to be had. Exactly. So we are going to start a new segment today that is timely, but needs to happen. And this is a a segment where we are just simply titling No Better, Do Better, you know, alluding to the the famous Maya Angelou quote um, about if you know better, then you do better. That's a very simplified version of it. Um, But basically what we're going to be doing is we're going to be examining songs that keep popping up in various discussion groups and lists that are songs that are, you know, questionable in some way? Are these songs that we want to continue doing with students? Why or why not? Because there's something about their past, why they were written, the lyrics, the, the subject matter that is questionable. And so we're going to analyze or we're going to research one of those songs and kind of share the research that we have discovered and then kind of where do we go from here? If we're going to take it out of our classroom repertoire, is there something that we're going to put in its place that serves the same purpose? or or not depending on what the song is so tanya is going to present a song that she did a little bit of research on and what her next steps are so take it away tanya okay well you know you keep saying research and then i'm embarrassed that this is not by any means thorough research all right so let's take the song shoe fly uh this is a song that i have done for years and years i also to my Kodai students in the summer show a fabulous section from a Jill Trinka concert where she sings Shoe Fly. This is something that I have always accepted as a song that is, is perfectly fine for the music room. However, um, this is one of those problematic songs. And I know that it, it's been brought up many times and we've mentioned it here as well. And I think we've linked to it and we will link to it again. There are lists out there. Um, Lauren McDougall is um, a fantastic music educator. She is the program director and an instructor at the American Kodai Institute. Um, and she started a list where she did some research on some specific songs that are problematic and she gives a little information about why this is problematic and then she provides links to places where you can follow through now i'm a little concerned and that we've been seeing i've been seeing on facebook some uh, people from other groups who have started their own lists which is fine but that are not quite as thorough i have one on my laptop right now that a group a Facebook group from, um, yeah, I, I can't even remember the name of the group, but that people have started putting together. Now, when we talk about researching and, and looking into a problematic song, blogs are not going to be the end of your research. It can be a start. A Google search can be a start. So if you type in shoe fly, is it racist or shoe fly racist question mark, you will get some things to, to look at. And you can spend a lot of time following all those things. For Shoe Fly specifically, I went to, I knew Lauren had it on her list and I went to her list and read all of the links that she connected to Shoe Fly. And the one that I'm going to highlight is Andrew Ellingson's post on Decolonizing the Music Room, where he writes a complete article about what he learned about Shoe Fly. And then he has links as well and why he's not doing it anymore, which I'm not going to recount for you here because I really want you to go read that. And we're going to put that link in there. Now, there's more research that one could do on Shoefly. For me and my purposes, I know Andrew. I trust decolonizing the music room. I mean, Andrew Ellingson, um, I consider a friend, and I know his practices. So from his information, just knowing that um, 
this was a song that was written by a soldier that was kind of being annoyed by a black, another black soldier or a black soldier um, and that it was meant to poke fun at this black soldier and that it, it contains the n-word not too far down in verses that's enough for me right so this is not a song that um, I'm comfortable doing any longer and I always one of my rules of thumb right now is that if children could go and google the song and pretty quickly find out that the n-words in there then it doesn't have a place in my music room. If children can Google a song and pretty quickly find out that it was popular because of minstrel shows, then that's, that's, I'm done with that. Um, I also encourage you to please educate yourself on minstrel shows and blackface. And there's a lot of information out there. That, that's a big old rabbit hole to go down. But when you see a lot of those videos and you hear some of these songs that we've just accepted as part of the American folk song canon, and you see people in blackface singing Oh Susanna, the icky feeling that it gives me is enough. I mean, it was part of a minstrel show. Now that I've seen you know, all of this about the minstrel shows and it's dehumanizing a people, that's enough. I'm done as soon as I know that. That might not be the same for some people, but uh, you know what? I, I, I come down with, if it's a menstrual song, if it was made popular, I'm done. It's not, it's not going to be something I do. And then I'm stealing this from Brandy Waller-Pace, who stole it from somebody else. When in doubt, throw it out. So mm -hmm. if there's a song that you're like, I'm not sure about this, I haven't had the time to research, then just put it on hold, right? All right, so Shoe Fly is a song that I am... And I, I didn't do it last year because I did know this as of a little bit before last year, but not before I taught uh, Kodai Level 1 and I did use it. So, you know, Kodai Level 1 from last year, expect an email of lots of things soon. Um, so there's a song that I'm not doing. All right. A song that I will continue to do that I love is Just From The Kitchen. And I will provide the link to the Kodai song in um, index of Just From The Kitchen. And this is a song that provides the same um, moving around in a circle, joy, everybody singing that Shoe Fly does. And so I'll put that link out there. And as I have looked at Just From The Kitchen and it's from everything I've seen, not problematic. Now, if you're listening to this and you know that it is problematic because you have um, a special connection to somebody who has researched something that's not available online, please let me know and I will, you know, I will make amends. But so that's just an example. I know I've gone on too long. Um, the big takeaway that I would like to give is please don't just look at a list and say, oh, somebody said shoe fly is, is racist, so I'm done. Go and look for yourself because it's not just be for you to make a decision. Even if you've already made the decision that you're not going to do whatever song, you need to educate yourself. Like I said before, I am finding out I am woefully inadequate as far as my knowledge on some of these songs. Go find out. Go know better so that you can do better. But don't just take it from me or take it from Lauren. So Anytime you see a link on any of those lists, go follow it. Follow good links. Blog posts are great. There's great ones out there, but go deeper than blog posts. I also want to add that there's, there's lots of music teachers who are doing this researching work. Aileen Miracle already has a blog post out there, very well done, of five songs that she's not doing and five songs that she's doing instead of, where she lists specific melodic or rhythmic concepts that her five other songs fulfill. So please go check that out. That is also on the show notes. And it is time for our CODA section where we share something we've been enjoying processing in or outside of the, well, all outside of the music room. 
Carrie, <laughs> what you got? Okay, so I'm going to do I'm going to do a, a quick professional and a quick personal. Okay. So, um, a new podcast in the music education world, the newish podcast, um, comes from a, a fellow teacher in our district. That's why it came to our attention. Uh, Lindsay Gardner, who is a band teacher, has started a podcast called Leading Band Through COVID Land. And even though I am not a band teacher. Um, I've listened to a few episodes and um, I think it's just a really great listen because of just some of the out of the box thinking that she's, she interviews different band teachers from around the country and just some of the out of the box thinking that they're coming up with can definitely be applied to the music room. And then obviously if you teach instrumental in any way, definitely give it a listen. So yeah. shout out to Lindsay and leading band through COVID land. Tell it's your band podcast. people. Yeah. Yeah. Spread the word. Um, and then a quick uh, personal recommendation. I have really been enjoying a show that, you know, I always feel like I'm like eight seasons too late to anything that I recommend, but I've been watching How to Get Away with Murder because, oh. you know, I like my murder stuff and I don't know why it took me so long to watch this. And of course, it's it's very kind of silly drama on top of, I mean, there, there's they get into some real stuff too, but it kind of has a a slight Grey's Anatomy feeling to it where it's a little over the top, but um, it's good. And if, if you're just looking for something fun to watch and you don't mind the murdery stuff like me, um, check it out. It's on Netflix, How to Get okay. Away with Murder. Yeah. And I think there's a new season that's about to be um, added to Netflix like soon. So you'll have lots more to watch if you're just starting to binge it like me. Nice. All right. How about you, Tanya? What's, what have you been enjoying? Okay. Well, um, as I said previously, I am listening to things mostly. Um, and I'm listening and walking around my neighborhood and then talking to you and my husband <laughs> about all the things. So I wanted to recommend, we already talked about the SCORE podcast. Yes. Um, and it's, again, mostly band-centered, but their latest episode uh, they talk about white fragility in music education is excellent. Yes. But today on Instagram, um, Sarah from F Flat Books, she had a live conversation with Justin from the Score podcast. And I was lucky enough that I just, I hadn't planned it, but I just happened to be at the right place in the right time. And I got to see it and hear it. And, and it was just a, a fantastic conversation and you should go seek it out. I don't know how Instagram live works and how long those things are there, but hopefully she'll put it on a, can you do that with an IEG video TV thing? Well, go to Instagram, follow a fat flat books. If you are not already follow the score podcast, if you are not already totally worth it. And that conversation was just like a continuation of what they already talked about in their latest episode. So I want to recommend that. And then another podcast that someone in Instagram land or maybe Facebook land recommended to us. And I'm sorry that I don't know who that was, but it's a podcast called 1619 put out by the New York Times. And the, the episode in particular that I'd like to recommend is episode three, The Birth of American Music. It is so well done. And it talks about black music being like so much a part of like all American music that the um, narrator of this podcast starts with yacht rock. Are you, are you aware of this genre of yacht rock? No. Oh, well. All right. So we're talking Kenny Loggins, the Doobie Brothers. Um, this it's all music from like 1975 to like 1984, and it's music that I associate. I've got a nostalgia for of being in the car while my mom is running errands type of music. But it's very feel good music. But he starts with that genre, and then he goes into how yacht rock is obviously influenced by gospel sounds, doo-wop sounds, you know, vocal stylings, and then he goes out from there. It is such a well-done episode, and if you want to get your music geek history, you know, stuff on, really enjoyable. So, cool. music, yeah. 1619, episode three, The Birth of American Music. Music. 
We've reached the double bar line. Thank you for listening to Music Teacher Coffee Talk. Our show notes can be found at musicteachercoffeetalkpodcast.com. You can connect with us on Facebook or Instagram. Just look for Music Teacher Coffee Talk. If you enjoyed this show, please consider subscribing, rating, and leaving us a review on iTunes to help others find this podcast. In our next episode, we'll be discussing chapters one and two of Music Education and Social-Emotional Learning, The Heart of Teaching Music by Scott N. Edgar, which we have heard very recently that you can now find at J.W. Pepper in addition to GIA publications. Be sure to grab your copy and read along with us. And until next time, this is Tanya. And this is Carrie wishing you happy musicking.